Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Active fund management, the bit where a portfolio manager actively pits his own skills against the herd and tries to beat the market, has long been in decline. Humans are at passe. These days, it's all done using indices and computers. So-called passive fund management, where allocations and returns aim to track market indices, has expanded relentlessly over the past few decades. The first index fund was established by the pension scheme of the American luggage company Samsonite in 1971. You're in the Samsonite suitcase, Neil? No, I could never see the point of getting an expensive suitcase. It just (laughs) means it's more likely to be stolen at the airport. Okay, anyway. This pension fund was to manage just $6 million of passive funds. But in recent years, especially since the millennium, growth in this area has been spectacular. And by 2022, passive mutual funds and exchange-traded funds accounted for around 45% of the US market. And it's been a similar story in other countries too. The argument for passive investment is simple. It's cheap much cheaper than conventional active funds. Cost, as opposed to fund manager performance, is about the only thing a retail investor can reliably control. But people have long worried that this benefit might come with a broader societal cost. Would passive investment make markets less efficient? Such distortions are hard to prove, and it's fair to say that no one has yet made a convincing case that something downright pernicious has happened. But our guest today has come up with another reason we might be concerned about what's been going on. John Coates, a professor at Harvard Law School, argues in a new book, The Problem of Twelve, that eventually, the way things are going, just 12 individuals could enjoy de facto power over most US companies. The effect of indexation will be to turn the concept of passive investing on its head and produce the greatest concentration of economic control in our lifetimes. But what does all this mean in practice? How worrying is it? And what should we do about it? So welcome, John. It's very good to have you on the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Well, perhaps we could start really with with a bit of an explanation from you about who the 12 are and why you became worried about this particular problem. So I sometimes teach in the business school at Harvard and a few years ago was asked to prepare a primer for the incoming young men and women who did not know much about corporate governance to kind of give them an overview And at the end, we were asked to talk about trends. And as I thought about the world of how companies are governed and owned, which I've been following for my whole career, 30 years, the single biggest changes, it occurred to me, there were three of them. Two of them are in this book. A third one, globalization, is not in the book, really. And the two are the growth of index funds and the growth of private equity funds. Those two types of asset management companies really have come to play a role that when I looked at the data surprised even me, even though I've been following them, more concerning than their current level of ownership and and activity is the growth and the trend and the fundamentals when you reflect on it, which are not going away. So currently, the top four index funds alone control 25% of all of the stock of every single company on all of the U.S. stock exchanges and a lower but comparably impressive percentage of the London Stock Exchange go around the world. So that's index funds. 
private equity funds, their model is not to buy traded stock, it's to buy whole companies. They now control in the U.S. roughly 15 to 20% of the entire U.S. economy, which is pretty astonishing. Both of those two types of funds have grown at an average rate over the past 25 years of roughly 12 to 15%, which is, as you know, significantly higher than our economies or the markets or corporate capital formation. And the fundamentals driving that, you mentioned low cost. Low cost not only is a feature of index funds, but it's something that gets easier for them to pull off the bigger they get because they have economies of scale in what they do. So they're able to charge even less as they get bigger, which then means they get better at doing the one thing they're marketed for, which means they get bigger, which means they get better, et cetera, et cetera. Private equity is not quite as sharp in its concentration, but I do think private equity has economies of scale in a, in a similar, less easily captured way that's also driving that growth. So that's what got me to worry about this. You asked who they are. 12 is a little bit of a notional number. It, there were 12 disciples and oh. 12, <laughs> member, 12 members on a typical board. That was going to be my first question. Where does this number come from? It's meant to convey a, a small number of people that uh, collectively are are able to exert outsized control. For the index funds, it would be just to list the institutions, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, and you can pick a couple more if you want to get to six. And then on the private equity side, it would be KKR, Blackstone, Apollo, Carlisle. And again, you could pick a couple more depending on which particular asset you're interested in to get to the 12. That's basically the idea. Okay. Well, look, these two, as you, you say, are very different in their method of operation. One is a very passive set of people who've often been criticized for not really doing very much to keep an eye on the companies that they buy because the computer tells them to, whereas private equity is a hyper-controlling enterprise where you effectively get right inside the boardroom and tell everyone what to do. I suppose thinking a bit about the passive funds, I'm interested in your concept of how this influence is exercised. We can sort of see it with private equity, but less with passive funds. And why, apart from obviously the, the concentration itself, it could be so pernicious? And if there are any examples of it being pernicious to date? So the premise of the book, and I think it's sort of a, Common sense is a misused phrase, but a, a commonsensical idea that if at the end of the day, control decisions have to be made, a small number of people, and at the limit, just imagine one, if you really want to see the point, have the ability to control the entire economy. I don't really need there to be, and I'm not arguing actually, that there is a demonstrable current financial negative impact. If anything, as you say, the traditional critique of index funds is there insufficiently good at pushing portfolio companies to do better at profit maximization. And that may well be true. I don't really take that argument on in the book. Regardless, if Goldman Sachs controlled the entire U.S. economy, even if they were doing a good job with it as a financial matter, I suspect there would be a political reaction and it would be viewed as pernicious for the democracy, not for the necessarily for the economy. I actually think the problem is two-sided here. It's that people will perceive concentration of control and influence as a threat to a democratic republic, as it has in the past. We've had episodes before banks and insurance companies were 
viewed that way. Uh, and the oil companies too. And oil company, different sectors at different times. But then there's a reverse problem. So when banks became threatening in the early U.S. Republic, laws were passed that effectively made that sector quite inefficient for the next 150 years. It kept scale to the size of a town. A bank could not grow beyond the deposits it could raise from a single small town in Omaha, for example. So the threat to index funds, I think index funds are, fin are wonderful financial vehicles. I'm writing the book in part because I worry for them as much as I'm worried about them. Now, you asked about what's the evidence of the influence. So I'll sketch a couple of things. To restate, the top four index funds control 25% of the shares, which gives them 25% of the votes in every board election annually for every public company. They do not typically run board slates. They don't try to take control in, in a direct way, but they have used that voting power, most famously, to displace three members of the Exxon board two years ago over the objections of the current Exxon board that were nominated not by them, by somebody else, but by somebody who would have had no chance of succeeding in a conventional board election over the objection of the current board but for the fact that the index funds supported that contest. That's a, a vivid illustration. One of the largest oil companies in the world, incredibly immune from shareholder pressure for 100 years. Suddenly, the board's composition changes and doesn't simply change, but actually included a sustainability expert on it, put there because of the index funds, and her specialization is sustainable energy, which Exxon had denied needing to know anything about until 2015. That's a pretty dramatic swing in the way Exxon functions. And if you look at Exxon's capital expenditures since that election, they have put a lot more money into carbon sequestration and other types of green energy initiatives. Some people call it greenwashing. It's billions of dollars, so it's expensive greenwashing. That's an example. So a lot of people would say that's not in itself problematic. Right. I'm that's looking a good exercise. My neighbor. But, <laughs> but you're, saying, you're, saying, you're saying that it's not necessarily how they use it. It's the fact that they are capable of exercising this muscle as and when they choose, and they may choose to do so on non-economic societal grounds, like saying we should take a different view about carbon emissions or whatever. Precisely. Power is power. I happen to think Exxon probably should have already been pivoting to sustainable energy. So from a purely financial perspective, I think it was probably a sensible change. But just to pivot, they've received a great deal of political criticism partly as a result of that intervention. And the result of that has been this past year, in the most recent uh, set of elections and, and votes, Vanguard, for example, did not vote in favor of any environmentally friendly initiatives at any of the companies that it owns. So it went from being you know, progressively using its power in a way that I kind of like to a direction that I kind of don't like. And the point, though, is who is Vanguard? Yeah. I mean, I actually use them as an asset manager, but I don't know who's making these very politicized decisions about how company power is used. They're not buying the stocks strategically. They buy the entire index. That's the whole premise of the, of the business model. But there's a small group of people inside Vanguard who are exercising power with my money in a way that I have very little ability to influence or even know about. Yeah, and they may not be particularly interested in maximizing the returns you get from your capital because they have other agendas that they're following. I think that the precedent set for Exxon is extremely dangerous. 
and the fact that it seems to have sort of settled down in slightly uncontroversial way is just a stroke of luck. I mean, my argument would be is that the oil companies should get oil and they should get the profits to the markets, to the, the owners of the capital, who can do with it what they wish. And if they wish to save the planet with it, then that's up to them. But I think that that move particularly sort of subverted the whole reason, whole raison d'etre of a major oil company. I think regardless of one's perspective about the financial choices that an oil company should make, and I'll just, I can't help myself, but just note in passing, Exxon at the time was the highest cost, largest CapEx spender of the entire oil sector. Exxon is not going to be the last company standing. It's going to be Aramco. But put aside where you view the future of oil, as of the date of that proxy contest, there were real debates about whether they were wasting shareholder money or not. So you could view the intervention from a purely financial perspective in either direction. For my purposes, what's important is that these four funds decided the fate. And they did it with almost no engagement with their own investors whose money they're managing. It's, it sounds to me like the right answer for the wrong reason. Okay, so we dealt with the slightly, I would say, nebulous threat from passive funds. But the real thing is they're so large and they're so concentrated. And as you say, they continue to accrue more economic power every year. We can park that worry and sort of think about it. The other one is obviously, I would say, much more obvious, which is private equity. And I'm interested in the extent to which that's a distinct concern as opposed to the big passive funds or whether you see them blending into some kind of strange toxic cocktail of power and control. All right. So the commonalities are they're both asset managers. They're both managing other people's money. They both face potential conflicts of interest. They both face the risk that the people running them are not running them solely in the interest of their own investors, but rather for whatever reasons, their own interests. So that's the commonality. The other commonality is I think their growth has occurred partly as a result of existing constraints on other financial institutions. So they've filled the spaces that perhaps once banks or insurance companies would have occupied. Those institutions, even after, especially after the financial crisis of 2008, are quite inhibited from directly competing except through funds that they might happen to sponsor. And none of the big banks in the US are, are really involved in either of these two industries in a significant way. So those are the reasons I link them. They divide the world, right? So index funds by public companies, private equity, by definition, takes companies private if they're not already private or just flips them from one to the other. So there are two different parts of the economy and their private equity control is absolute over the companies that they buy, not as appreciated because they are by design dark. They make no disclosures other than what they choose to make at the portfolio company level. Some of them are publicly traded at the advisory level, but you get very little information about the assets they control through the advisory company reports. So to understand how big they've gotten, you have to draw some inferences about assets under management, the types of funds they run, and then using public data from the Fed. And if you do that, I think you get a consensus that they're now, as I said, 15 to 20% of the overall US economy, which is dramatically up from two or 3% 25 years ago. Every company they buy they have complete control over, they dramatically change. They do that in ways that is often good, like they have a, a toolkit which can definitely improve 
the operations of their companies relative to, for example, third generation owners who inherit a business and the family's not really interested anymore and the business starts going sideways, they sell the private equity and it actually probably does dramatically improve operations. But they also have a toolkit that is remarkably good at rent seeking, mm. at finding the seam in regulated industry regulation through which they can drive the business. And particularly, I would flag healthcare, senior living facilities in the US, many of which are now run by private equity funds. The weak oversight by the government of patient or resident health and and well-being has allowed them in many instances to make a great deal of money in ways that is really not sustainable. And so that would be the risk, the kind of risk that I think private equity poses, a very different kind of risk than with index funds. Yeah, the um, the parallel here, of course, is the utilities, where you have described very accurately what the buyers of the water and electricity companies, which were privatized, have done with the assets since. They've found the cracks in the regulations and driven their coach and horses through it. If you think about the private equity model, it's to provide enormous incentives, very disciplined and tight governance structure to maximize short-term cash flow. And that can be great if you're talking about a company that's been loosely run and not very well managed from a consumer or a shareholder perspective. It can also be quite bad if you're talking about uh, the kind of regulated sectors you just described. Again, the concentration is not quite as acute yet, but just to sketch it for you, the four largest private equity complexes now have more than 30% of the overall private equity industry. And that also is up significantly and, and growing at a, at a faster rate. Again, I, my belief very strongly is that there are economies of skill in how they function Here's an amazing fact I stumbled on about 10 years ago in doing a case study. They're the single biggest payer of fees to Wall Street. More than any other company, they are the source of revenue for uh, investment banks and, and merchant banks. And so they are plugged into a network of information about the financial markets, which I think is most adaptable at scale. They're able to, to really use their slight advantage in knowing what's happening in various places to raise money more cheaply than anyone else and to deploy it and time their exits and entries better than anybody else, which is why I think the biggest guys are growing faster. And the current interest rate environment is only going to make the big guys even bigger. Sounds to me as though they should go into fund management and they might make a lot of money. <laughs> Indeed, they might even make some money for their customers. Yes. And what's interesting to me about the private equity industry overall, that way on financial terms, is they kind of break even. They don't do any better than than an index fund would do buying the public markets, especially when you take into account risk, which, of course, you cannot observe. Even if the limited partners in the funds can get return data, they do. Obviously, at the end of the day, they know what they've earned. They don't get an insight into risk because there's not a daily price to watch and, and to think about how it's moving over time. They, they, they get the opposite. They put their entire trust in the private equity managers and they get reports 
which tell them, based on the estimate of the manager, how unvolatile their investment <laughs> is, despite the enormous leverage they put on it. Right. And how well they're which doing. Which makes them very oddly very yeah. happy, because it tells them what they want to hear, which is that their money is safe. Thank you, Mr. Madoff. We'll let you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> precisely. Precisely. You're right. The conflicts of interest with private equity are pretty clear. They are pretty self-interested organisations and, and it's much clearer the threat they pose to the operation of the economy, I'd say, more than just a sort of vague political concern about being overpowerful. But I'm interested because you obviously you've got a long perspective of this, looking at the whole history of the development of corporate law and how governance has developed over the years. If one criticises this, one is implicitly saying we were in a better state before. We've come out of a golden age. But do you think there ever was really a golden age? Yeah, I tend to have a slightly different view of financial history. I don't think there was a golden age. I think there were real problems with publicly traded companies in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s in the US that allowed the managers of those companies famously to do things like fly their pet dogs around on corporate jets for you know companionship alone, right? Not even with the CEO in the plane, just the dog. <laughs> Which company? <laughs> Name them. <laughs> that was RJR. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. And so I do think private equity, which at the time was called a buyout fund, that sounds a little more pernicious. So they've rebranded brilliantly, which is part of the story I tell in the book. I do think they were a healthy response to some of those problems. But my own view of financial history is that whenever there's a solution to a problem, it generates more problems of its own. And that's, I think, where we are today. I would not rewind to 1975 when I don't think corporations were terribly well run in the US. But at the same time, I worry that in 2035, we're going to have a worse problem of a different kind being channeled through private equity. One thing that people don't quite appreciate because the old model, the old image of the buyouts is they would buy, they would improve, and then they would sell. So that kind of exerted a discipline on them as a fund. But today, more than half of all of the exits by private equity are not back to the public markets, but to another private equity firm <laughs> and increasingly to their own funds, continuation sales. So they're just simply moving money from one fund to another fund. They're also borrowing against their overall portfolio funds. And the upshot of it is it's no longer a intervention in a corporate life. It's a new separate capital universe. That world, the companies in it don't leave ever again. They, they simply continue to be run within that private equity space over time. And I think the, the cumulative effect of the conflicts you allude to is ultimately going to blow up on the investors. Many people often think private equity investors are large, sophisticated institutions. We don't have to worry about them. But when people say that, I always remind them, well, these are the same institutions that bought into the mortgage securitization market in 2006 and seven right? Those are the same pension funds and, and yeah. that you're talking about. Anyway. And it's your money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you take a randomly chosen private equity fund representative, put them in a conference room with a randomly chosen pension fund representative, I know whose money I'm putting on the resulting negotiation of both disclosure and, uh, and control. <laughs> yes. Well, I suspect it's the difference between the incentives that each one of them has. The pension fund manager has uh, a jolly good salary, is probably right, well rewarded. The private equity manager has the chance to get sickeningly rich. So this gives them an added incentive to try and uh, get their own way. That brings us on to the question of solutions. 
as you say, the markets may take too long to correct. Politicians may form the wrong conclusions. They may uh, crash through the door and do something destructive because they suddenly get annoyed. But is there a way of, if you like, deflating this balloon without bursting it and getting a mess all over the place? In the case of index funds, I think rather than thinking of it as deflating the balloon, it's it's more a question of encouraging and, if necessary, nudging the funds to do more of what they're already doing. They've recognized they've had a problem. Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard, agreed with me before he passed away and warned his, his fellow investors that they needed to do more to address the legitimacy issues that their success was creating. So as a result, they've been putting out quarterly reports when they're only required to put an annual for the votes they do. That could be even more frequent. I think a better thing even beyond that would be some advance notice. We're planning to think about diversity in a more aggressive way than we have in the past. We would like your views. Because what they're really functioning as in these spaces are quasi-regulatory agencies. They're exerting a kind of regulatory power. And we would never expect one of our major regulatory bodies to just suddenly announce without any consultation a new position on a major topic. And so I think if they think of themselves that way and start acting more to provide accountability in that way, I think that will alleviate, as you say, the nebulous concern. It'll add cost. That's why they've resisted it. And they function on a low-cost model. And I don't want it to be too big of a cost because I use them as my investment vehicle. But I think some some a greater investment in in transparency would be a a healthy thing for them. For private equity, I think the first place to start again is with their own, just follow their lead. They put out their own reports, even though they're not required to. They're not comparable. They're not audited or assessed. We need to do a little more than we currently do. And I would, particularly for the funds that raise the most money from truly dispersed ultimate end investors like pension fund beneficiaries, I I would mandate some, at least after the fact, reporting on metrics that we could really use to look back and say, okay, was this really a risk-adjusted good return? Because I don't think that nicely paid pension fund manager is ever going to want to go back and revisit those decisions in the way that we collectively publicly ought to be encouraging them to do. So in both cases, I think disclosure and engagement with the public are the healthiest kinds of responses. And both industries are already starting to do it on their own, but they're never going to get there without some type of political slash regulatory guidance. (laughs) Some people have argued that technology might be a solution to the passive fund where you can virtually allow the individual to exercise their own individual vote if they so choose. When I asked my 16-year-old kids, I managed to hold their attention long enough at the dinner table to ask the question, <laughs> what would you do about this problem? There, theirs is exactly yours. Like, well, I have a phone. Why can't I just vote on my phone? And you know, there's a UK-based company that's trying to do this. There's a couple of US-based companies that are trying to do this. Here's the challenge. Ultimately, most people who invest do not want that real control. They don't want to have to make uh, voting decisions for 4,000 companies annually, much less 10,000 if they're global. <laughs> so the dimensions of the choices have to be dramatically shrunk to make it credible that anything like that could work. And then within that shrinkage, there's many, many judgmental questions that could be made. Currently, the index funds are purporting to pass through the vote, but actually, if you read carefully, they're not. They're passing through the right to choose among series of policies, which they will consider in voting for you. And if you look at the policies, they're all written by ISS, a major proxy advisory firm, 
and they all tend to look very similar to each other. One One's written by the, the U.S. Uh, group of Catholic bishops, which I thought was very interesting. As a Catholic policy, this will be very different. But then when, <laughs> when you read it, it actually looks almost identical to one written by an environmentally friendly group. Uh, there's like very little delta between the policies. So the challenge for the pass-through technology idea is shrinking dimensions and doing it in a credible way that actually could get take up from, you know, more than 50 people who, you know, are, are zealots. I would hate it if that zealotry was going to drive the outcome, right? So it has to be something that would appeal at least a little to ordinary investors. Yeah. The, the problem is that the zealots are all already employed by the funds to in the... In the <laughs> zealots, maybe. zealots tend to take charge where, where they appear. That's the problem. <laughs> the non-zealot is always struggling to get his voice heard over the zealots. <laughs> I mean, some people have suggested this is a battle which is akin to the sort of battle that America had with the trusts in the early 20th century, even though that had much more clear conflict of interest problems. But the solution was to create more competition. And in theory, you could say to these organisations, you can't be monolithic about this. You can't impose your vetting and political choices on people. You have to give them a choice in some way. And whether that means you have to run different funds, you could have a a Neil adjacent fund, which offered you the chance to invest in (laughs) gun manufacturers. Absolutely. (laughs) Chemical plants. (laughs) It's what we. It's what. It's what I used to and, call and f- footsie for bad. Wild catters <laughs> in the Texas Panhandle. Actually, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. It's a tracker portfolio of oil, coal, armaments, cigarettes, anything else you can think which is bad for you. Well, choose, I, I choose death. Could, I think, could be called. I think that. I think that's a really good marketing plan. <laughs> In my case, big sugar. Big sugar, yes. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.